You're listening to Midori House First Broadcast on the 15th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. And the Oscar goes to... The Shape of Water. It's award season, apparently, but do these ceremonies themselves deserve any prizes? My guests, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Rabello, and Chiara Romella will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including France and why we've just devoted an issue of Monocle magazine to it, the resignation of a Brazilian magazine editor over ill-advised birthday photography, and Los Angeles's attempts to gatecrash the world art fair circuit. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle 24's Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Rabello, and Chiara Ramella. Welcome all. And we will start in and indeed with France, which not at all coincidentally is the subject preoccupying the new issue of Monocle magazine on a newsstand near you now. The question we put on the cover is the one about whether France is the last hope of liberalism, a less melodramatic proposition than it might sound when you consider that France is the only nuclear-armed member of both NATO and the EU not presently having some sort of nervous breakdown. Um, What I thought I would do to establish the parameters of the conversation, Fernando, were to go round the table asking people in reverse proximity of their homeland to France what they make of it. I win, obviously, coming from Australia in in many senses uh, of of the word. Uh, I I approve of France in general. Where where are you on it, Fernando, from Brazil? I'm very suspicious to say I approve it very much. And in fact, I do have some family... you were about to say you were very suspicious of France. I thought this conversation was about to take a whole thing. My my mother, she has some kind of French origin as well. And I love their music, their ways. So yes, I mean, it's very hard for me to criticise France. Carlotta, from Portugal, which is sort of two countries away. Do you think uh, I'm closer than Chiara? <laughs> no, well, I mean, Chiara's further away now, obviously, because she's in Los Angeles, but she's from Italy, which is only one country away, okay. if uh, I've got my... No, no I, that's, that's, I'm right about that. I stand okay with France. Like, I, I have great admiration for... Um, some of the elements that Fernando just mentioned, pop culture, um, the influence it has had on the European continent through the years. Uh, But right now, I think we are in a tricky situation where France is more as a as a soft power, let's say it, uh, more loved abroad than actually is uh, domestically. And that, for me, causes some issues that they need to sort out what's going on at home first. Uh, Chiara, joining us uh, via some sort of technological sorcery from Los Angeles, you are from Italy, which is just over the border with France and is at the moment engaged in something of a diplomatic spat with France, though I think uh, bloodshed will be averted. Uh, What is your view of of France, having grown up next to it? Well, indeed, actually, I'm from Turin, which is just across the Alps. So it's one of the places in Italy that feels most uh, connected to France in many ways. You know, uh, the very the much discussed TAV, which is the high speed link between Italy and France, will go from Turin to Lyon. So we're really, really close by. We share a lot of kind of cultural affinities if you go back historically. 
that used to be the Kingdom of Savoia, which kind of g went across the Alps. Um, I think, obviously, as we all know, at the, in the current time, we're experiencing a lot of diplomatic issues. Um, I think, historically, there's a huge kind of soft power rivalry. You know, just got to think about Champagne and Prosecco to start it off. But let's, let's not even go into the Mona Lisa, because that's, that's actually turned into an actual diplomatic issue right now. Um, one of the many facets that the spat between France and Italy has taken has actually been genuinely about whether works of art by Leonardo should be exhibited in France or Italy. Um, I think it's a it's a it's a rivalry that's been healthy <laughs> for a for a long number of years, and it saddens me to see it as it is right now. Because realistically, we must understand that France is a huge ally for us um, Italians. Um, and and uh, I mean the news is is from today. I think that the ambassador to Rome will actually return and he with Rome on February the seventh, following Di Maio's request to see the Gilets Jaunes uh, for for a potential new uh, for a potential new alliance in the European Parliament. I hope things are on the mend, and I hope that coincides also with Italy's president taking a bit more of a proactive role in Italian politics than its obviously populist um, vice presidents. Uh, Carlotti, as you were suggesting, there's, there's well, I, it's true of any country, I guess, that it's seen differently from uh, inside than from outside it. But with France at the moment, that is especially pronounced. What is it about, well, not so much France, but in particular its present president, Emmanuel Macron, uh, that the rest of the world sees that quite a lot of French people do not or will not? Well, it's uh, quite easy if we go down the Tony Blair comparison with <laughs> in the United Kingdom. But uh, I think Macron, you know, when he first uh, emerged um, as a candidate, represented a lot of things that we hadn't seen in French mainstream politics for a while. And as um, a politician, he is very... Uh, open and has been since the beginning, uh, since the early days as a candidate, to the idea of this liberal Europe, the idea that, you know, France has a role to play in the European, um, particularly in the European Union, more than the European continent just. Um, and, you know, at the time where the Brexit debate was just starting, that was kind of seen as, you know, um, a force that was needed. Um, and I think since then, uh, regardless of everything that's been going on domestically in the country, um, Macron remains this idea and this bastion of hope for the values that Europe represents. Uh, this idea of, you know, uh, embracing one another and uh, as nations, this idea that diplomacy will always prevail. Um, and it's no coincidence that with everything that's been going on here in the UK with the process of leaving the EU, that we've seen... Um, a, str a strengthened hand between France and Germany when it comes to the European alliance. Um, and I think that, that really does play a lot in how mainly Europeans see Macron more than France. It is a president. Uh, Fernando, Macron has had to grapple, as has pretty much every French leader since whichever Louis it was they put on the guillotine, with large-scale protests in the streets, people leveraging up the cobblestones of Paris and, and hurling them at the gendarmes. It's a, a, a noble tradition. Uh, at this point. In this particular instance, he has been besieged, besieged by large hordes of angry middle-aged men in high-vis jackets. What have you made of his response to that? 
Well, clearly, I don't think the the Gilets Jaunes movement was very happy with his response, but at least he tried. I mean, in a way, he was uh, very honest. Okay, he was at the Elysee Palace. I mean, maybe he should have changed the setting when he gave that famous uh, speech over there. But there's a problem with the Gilets Jaunes, because I remember in my own country, Brazil, in 2013, we had a similar wave of protest that people were protesting against fuel tax and suddenly it became bigger. And look who we have as a president, our far-right leader. And that's my worry with uh, those... Uh, protests. So I think Macron will have to do a little bit more actually to engage uh, with uh, the Gilets Jaunes. Um, two things here. I think first the, his response of engaging on this grand national debate tour was a great PR move uh, because it appeases both both uh, domestically um, uh, the people that are opposing him and also looks great internationally. Uh, this idea that you know protests won't m- sink our economy. Look, I'm doing something about it. And yes, he's going around the country meeting other mayors, business leaders. Uh, let's figure out what's wrong with France, a state of the fra- of the of the union sort of thing um, and remaking uh, the uh, the identity uh, of the country uh, and to show that he's listening. Uh, but the second is when it comes to the Gilets Jaunes uh, movement I think it was uh, last Saturday that it kind of highlighted how they are in complete uh, chaos. We saw, uh, it, it was Saturday in Lyon particularly, where we there was these videos circulating, not only online, but in a lot of TV uh, channels uh, from international media, not just in France, of these two factions within the Gilets Jaunes movement fighting each other in the street of Lyon. And all you could see is like these group of men and women wearing this high visibility vests fighting each other. How can you even tell who's on your side and who's not? And why are you are you fighting? Somebody needs to start selling those vests in different colours, clearly. I think <laughs> That's it, maybe it, the solution. Is, is, is the way forward. Uh, let's move along now. Uh, that issue of monocle, I should remind everybody, on a newsstand near you now. Uh, let's look now at Brazil, the fashion press of which has been consumed by a scandal, echoing the recent revelations that pretty much everyone now occupying senior office in Virginia used to wear blackface to parties in the 1980s for some reason. However, Vogue Brazil's fashion director, Donata Morales, has resigned following a more recent transgression. Photos of her 50th birthday party showed her and other guests posing in tableau which reminded some of bygone images of Brazilian slave owners with their slaves. Uh, Fernando, what has actually occurred here? Well, the whole story started with a picture. I mean, Donatella Morales, she's a very rich woman. She was celebrating her 50th birthday uh, in Salvador, which, funnily enough, is the blackest city in Brazil as well. And the picture was she was sitting in a big chair uh, wearing her pink dress, you know, and surrounded. uh, uh, There were four black women wearing traditional uh, dress from the state of Bahia. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I actually do know the work of Donatella Meirelles at Vogue Brazil. I don't think personally she's a, she's racist, but I'm glad that the country and even the world, because this is becoming like a worldwide story, people are discussing this because in Brazil there's still a lot of racism and how she, I mean, she works with image. I mean, how she wouldn't realize that a picture like this would cause such a commotion as it did. Is it a specifically uh, Brazilian image, though, or does it have a specifically Brazilian resonance? Because I have to say, had I looked at it, not being aware of any subtext of any or any history of those kind of photos and those kind of portraits, I just would have thought, well, I don't know, maybe these are friends of hers at the party. No, it it is. I mean, it reminds of the colonial era where you have the Sinha, which is the white woman surrounded by her servants, which were always uh, dressed 
dressed in white. But of course, you told me that the chair actually it was from Candomblé, which is an Afro-Brazilian religion. And those women, you know, they were paid in the party because they're dressed, uh, you know, in a, in a costume from that state. So I, I understand her excuse, but it did look weird, especially if you're a black person in I, Brazil. I think it's just an excuse. Uh, mm. I, I mean, w- the, that photo just literally romanticizes um, that that period uh, in Brazil. And uh, it's interesting that you, Andrew, just mentioned how if you had no idea of the subtext b- behind it, like you, w- you would then immediately associate with that time. But I think, you know, being Portuguese and um, knowing a bit of our history too, uh, it's uh, it, it, as soon as I saw that image, uh, it immediately came to mind. Like, how did how did she do that? And I know there's a, a, another issue here, which is separating her as a person to you know the company she represents or what she represents in the media industry in Brazil. But someone in that position shouldn't ever uh, fall fall on this mistake because. Of course, those photos would emerge, and I don't know how no one has had told her before that that this would be the reaction. And and I would like to add, I mean, she works for Vogue Brazil. I mean, which is is a very old magazine in Brazil since the sixties. The first black woman on the cover by herself was in 2011. This in a country where half of the population is is mixed race or, or, or black. This is... This 2011. Is 2011. I mean, it's interesting because even when I go to Brazil, you know, I'm not black, but I am mixed race. Uh, I sense more racism than when I'm here in London. It, it's something that you perceive. It, it, it's very weird because people here, I know they're talking about racism all the time in the United States as well, but in Brazil, people don't discuss racism as much, but there's clearly more racism uh, than here. This is from a personal experience, I would say. Chiara, is there an obvious reason why you can think of why somebody like uh, Donata Morellas, who presumably does know Brazil's history rather better than, for example, I do, um, would allow herself to wander into a, well, not wander into, actually set up and pose in a photo shoot like that? Is there a is there any kind of sane, rational explanation as to why you would do it or not? Well, I think images are complex things and our use of cultural artefacts are complex things. And it's very hard sometimes, or perhaps people like to think it's hard to draw the line between paying homage to something in the same way that she's saying, you know, she's using a chair that's actually from a folk religion. Um, to appropriating something in a way that's upsetting. And I think it all comes down to the image and whether it is patronizing, whether it is exploitative. Um, And that's something that you can just read case to case. Look at, for example, what happened with Dolce & Gabbana um, a few months ago. Uh, You know, obviously here we're talking about fashion brands and not media specifically, but again, a very heavy and conscious use of image for advertising. They launched a campaign in China with a woman uh, who was being taught how to use chopsticks to uh, eat Italian food, eat pizza and cannoli with chopsticks. Now, I mean, if you watch the video, it's horrendous and cringeworthy. And the reason why it's horrendous and cringeworthy is because it's not a homage. It's not laughing with somebody. It's not uh, celebrating a culture, but it's patronizing it. It's teaching it to do something from a position of predominance. And that's where the problem lies. It's all about the eye of the viewer. So in that sense, you know, it's a case by case scenario. Um, And just we just need to be better at reading these things.
Uh, Fernando, I was I was going to suggest: Does every magazine, every newspaper, every media outlet in the world need to hire somebody full time whose job is basically just to keep saying, "Guys, are we absolutely sure we've thought this through?" But is a better question and probably a better answer that this is the kind of thing that happens when you have a media outlet with a staff that is perhaps not as diverse as it might be. You were mentioning that it took Vogue Brazil uh, of all publications until 2011 to put a black model on the cover. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, last year I spoke to Daniela Falcone. She's the the main uh, editor for Condenast in Brazil, and she was telling me, I mean, how she wants Condenast to be, uh, you know, more diverse. And I have to say, I mean, I think she entered in the company after 2011 or or around that time. So it's not her fault about you know the the, the, the racist history of of, of Vogue Brazil. I mean, among other titles, and, and and now they're saying they'll have a group with diverse women to look into those cases because there's been other similar cases in the magazine. So, for example, their January issue, which was set in Rio, was a celebration of the city, but they got a white uh, Dutch model, and and there's a picture of her in the beach, again surrounded by five black women. So, it, it, it's happening again. So, I think they are. They must look into that. And they also, um, I think it was on January or February issue that they misidentified two actresses mm. from Crazy Rich Agents. So clearly Vogue Brazil needs to, you know, just get better fact checkers and people to observe, I guess. Exactly. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Rebello, and Chiara Ramella. Coming up next, it's award season, but is anybody watching? California, here we come. Monocle has arrived on the West Coast. Our new shop and bureau is open at Platform, the design quarter in Culver City that's home to 100 boutique retail and culinary brands. If you're in town, pop along to meet the team, pick up the latest issue of the magazine and browse our exclusive collaborations. From elegant stationery to smart jackets, plus plenty in the way of print, of course. Discover our range from furniture to fragrances, courtesy of brands from the US and beyond. Intrigued? Then come and see us at our new LA outpost at Platform in Culver City. We look forward to meeting you there. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Melista. With me are Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Ribello and Chiara Ramella. It's showbiz awards season, it says here, which is exciting news for those entranced by the spectacle of already overpaid, overpraised and overindulged people being lavished in yet further acclaim. We've just had the BAFTAs and the Grammys and the Oscars and Brits are coming up, unless it's the other way around. And with them, an amount of fretting by those who care that perhaps these glitzy circuses are being left behind by these culturally fractured times. Uh, Fernando, I know for a cast iron fact that you actually watch these things. I love awards <laughs> show. I mean, honestly... My next question, <laughs> if I may follow that up, is why? But I don't like the dull ones. You know, I think you have to make a good one. I've watched the BAFTAs. What a dull show with lame jokes. I mean, with a 10-minute Cirque du Soleil presentation at the beginning of the show, that's not how you start an award. So... I like them, but I, I know they can be improved in some ways, you know, what, and I hope they are. S- seriously, though, what actually is it that you enjoy about them? It's must-watch. I mean, it's you can talk to your colleagues at work. I mean, I talk, you know, to Carlotta about the Oscar nominee, nominees. She just watched, for example, Green Book, and we said, is there a chance of winning Best Film? It, 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 it's, it's like watching f- football, f- f- the final football or the final of Eurovision. Really not. Well, <laughs> <laughs> in a way, in a way, in a way. I, I'm a big admirer of award shows, but yeah. Yeah, they have to step it up. 
Um, Chiara, I, I am something of an award sceptic, which is to say that I think I would literally need a gun at my head to sit through more than about 10 minutes of any given award ceremony. Um, where are you on these? Are they entertaining in their own right? And if they're not, do they actually serve any valuable purpose or not? Okay, so I've got to make a confession here. I don't think I've ever watched an entire Oscar <laughs> ceremony or Grammy ceremony or BAFTA ceremony in its entire length. Um, and I do, I think I agree. Actually, I, I read a piece by Stuart Hermitage in The Guardian um, saying that he thinks that these this shouldn't be televised. And I think perhaps I agree with that. But coming from, if if I was in in Europe right now, uh, I'd probably only consume the Oscars via YouTube clips in the morning, looking at, uh, you know, the, 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 the speeches and a few snippets. And that's how you would consume it. And you'd feel like you had seen everything that you needed to see. I've got to say that from this side of the world, I'm in Los Angeles right now, the build-up to these events is incredible. And I do see what Fernando is saying when he means, you know, this is like the final of football because there is more of a sense of anticipation of, you know, trying to predict what might or might not happen, which leads up to a sense of like wanting to find out what's going to happen before everybody else and whilst it's happening live. So... Perhaps it's a, it's perhaps it's it's just a time difference issue. What do you reckon, <laughs> um, well, Carlotta? Is there a, an argument for them in that they occasionally uh, turn a spotlight on people who might otherwise not have received it? I mean, I know of musicians in particular who've been given an enormous boost by winning a, a Brit here in the UK or a Grammy in the United States or an ARI award uh, in Australia, and 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 that was in those particular cases that I'm thinking of a boost they both needed and deserved. But did they do that often enough to justify the fact that, I mean, let's just remind ourselves that they gave a Grammy to Millie Vanilli? <laughs> I mean, I think especially when you talk about, you know, award shows for uh, the film and movie industry, I do see a purpose for them. You know, you need to, there is a need to reward people for the excellent work that they do. And while well, they get money. So, well, okay. The, but regardless of that, it is important to recognize, and often enough, the Oscars do highlight some people that otherwise wouldn't get that boost that you're talking about. And there are categories that, for us, the general public, we probably, you know, are the ones that we would skip if, like Kiara, we were just watching the YouTube <laughs> clips uh, the day after. Uh, we just care about the best actor, best actress, and um, best director. But, you know, if you work uh, with, you know, makeup, with special effects, sound effects, with cinematography, editing. This is an award that literally can put you at the top of your game for the next season of commissions. And those are the people that often are not highlighted enough that, you know, even as I say that, I can't name one person <laughs> on any of those categories. And, and that is a shame because the art of cinema is relies heavily on these people. And I know we're going to get to that point of the conversation shortly, mm. but the idea that, you know, there was a suggestion that some of the categories might be only uh, the awards released during the commercial break. Um, and specifically, the ones that they were thinking of doing that was editing and cinematography. For me, it's shocking. And it was uh, Guillermo del Toro, the director that 
won Best Director last year for Shape of Water. Um, he uh, said uh, when that rumor emerged, you know, these are some of the two categories that actually the movies have not inherited from theater, like acting, everything else. These are like inherently like Mm. categories from the cinema industry. And to present them on commercial breaks is just highlighting how we care more about stardom than actually, you know, the beauty and magic of this world. There's lots of pressure to make those awards shorter. So I think that's why perhaps they're going to do it. But I also think it's not the right way because, I mean, even me as as a big Oscars fan, I've seen things as a kid, the whole thing. Even here in the UK, I have to be awake until 5 a.m. actually. And sometimes I even come to work after. So, you know, kudos <laughs> to me. But I, I find it personally sad. I mean, I don't know, cut something else. But All of the speeches. Literally all of the speeches. Yeah, there's some quite boring speeches, all I have boring. to say. Who, Not all of them. Who's ever said anything interesting or amusing I mean, when accepting, a, accepting an Oscar? Don't you remember Julia Roberts when she went for Erin Brockovich? Well, I think 2001. I, watching. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was quite emotional. I think I almost cried with her or something. You know? I, I, I may probably also cry if I ever watched any of them, but for possibly for different reasons. But th- that, is, that is seriously my tip. Like, here's your prize. Well done. Get off. Next. No, but there's uh, there's a, a message that needs to be sent beyond that, Andrew. It can't be just like that. Otherwise, you know, why do you watch uh, football matches? Just here's the result. No need to come to the stadium. Why spend all this money? Because there's a, a <laughs> game beforehand. It's the equivalent of, like, obviously, people have seen the movie. And it's just like they, they all give the same speech. It's just like they thank their parents and God and the director in the academy. They could have that just printed on a T-shirt. They could just wear that onto the but stage. But sometimes things go wrong. Do you remember the La La Land year? Yeah, where exactly. I, and I was there watching live. In it felt special. View, not often enough. If they could arrange for more things to go wrong... <laughs> But that's the beauty of watching it live, yeah. because you you see everything before all the editing happens. And it's funny that you mentioned how you've seen the whole show since you were a kid. I don't remember exactly if I did it every single year, but I remember when I was in high school, like school would start at like 8, 9 a.m. And I would watch it until 5 and go to school the day after because I wanted to see the ceremony. Special. Special. Well, finally tonight, to Los Angeles, the city in which many of these baubles are distributed. Uh, It is also hosting its first Freeze Art Fair this week as an expression of the city's ambitions of equaling London and New York, it says here, as hubs for the global art market. More than 70 galleries are participating in this wingding, which is being held in the Paramount Studios lot. Uh, Chiara, you've been at it or you're planning to go to it or something of the sort. Uh, What is actually going on? I have been. Uh, it opened last night and it's morning on a Friday in, in Los Angeles right now. Um, it's interesting. I don't think anybody can genuinely make a claim of this being able to equal London and New York, at least from the point of view of scale. You know, here we're talking about 70 galleries, which is a third of New York. And I'm not actually sure of the numbers, but definitely much, much smaller than the big, big shindig that takes place in Regent's Park. Um, It's interesting. I think uh, many people have doubted Freeze's timing for this because other international fairs have tried to come here and basically always failed at trying to make a dent in in the art market locally. But there have been a series of things happening in in, in LA that have raised its profile as a genuine kind of fine arts. uh, Obviously, it's always been a cultural city, but a fine arts city, and especially kind of the programming of many of its institutions. And it's always been a city where artists have lived. It's just not a place where I think collectors have 
being willing to um, not to treat buying art like an investment like you would buy you know <laughs> stock or wine or whatever you want to invest in were you so were you personally tempted by any of what was on offer I think I will wait until I do achieve Hollywood stardom before <laughs> <laughs> before I'll dip uh, my toe a matter of into time. <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> but it's interesting how this fair is obviously establishing itself as a different cultural side to LA but naturally acknowledging the fact that many people who come to LA do want to get a bit of that sense of old school glamour you know it's you know it's relevant that they've chosen to be inside Paramount Studio you go in and you walk through the actual studio a lot in in works you know there are studios open people carrying props in and out you're you're really going to Hollywood and that is appealing and I think it there's no point pretending that that's not the cultural scene here and trying to go and plan yourself in a ex warehouse in downtown because uh, people find LA appealing because of this subtext as well. And Kiara, aren't you getting a ticket for the Oscars as well? I wish. No, I, until, so far, no invites for the after parties. So if anybody is kind enough to want to offer a culture editor a little a Vanity Fair invite, I'll be fine with that. I might use some of my contacts, Andrew, if you excuse me. <laughs> I, 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 I would actually hope so. Carlotta, just as a final thought on this, that can't an art fair basically be held anywhere? Well, uh, technically, yes, if you have, uh, you can work out the logistics and you have the budget for it. But uh, I do think that this idea of bringing, you know, Freeze to LA and using the charm of the cinema world to entice people. I mean, uh, Chiara was mentioning the Paramount uh, Studios there and uh, I was reading earlier how like the back lot is actually being used uh, to showcase some like non-for-profit organizations and some artists has a mini library. And it's interesting, I think, if you're attending the fair, not, you know, if you haven't hit the stardom that you can actually buy any of the pieces and you're just, you know, browsing through uh, to actually be able to see that side while looking to some other artists that would otherwise not be present in this sort of art fair. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Ribello, and joining us from Los Angeles, Chiara Ramella. Thank you all for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando, researched by Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. Marcus Hippie is in with the menu. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend. <laughs>